0: Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host with Tanya Talks where your voice is heard, your story is told on Marty Oakley's TS Radio Network and Stephen Burke's 89.9 KLRB Lighthouse Christian Radio in Oklahoma and in the surrounding areas. First, I would like to say hello to in my who in my opinion is the most beautiful mother in the world. So listen, I might be biased, but. I don't know, she's an incredible human being, but I might be biased, but that's okay. Most of us are when it comes to their family. But what is not okay is when there is bias that's related to the difference between somebody's life or death. Thank you for tuning in, listeners. We appreciate you, as always. You are the breath of our show. You are what energizes us, what keeps us going, because um, we know that you listen. We know that uh, it matters to you uh, what we bring to the table here with all of these uh, true counts of, of um, wrongful convictions, public corruption, and we don't think that everybody out there is doing the wrong thing that's in public office. We definitely don't. But I think there's an awful lot of wrong things that are happening. And you know, you can say it trickles up, you can say it trickles down, but what I do know, and most of you out there already know, is that it turns into a tsunami of precious lives unlawfully ended or destroyed in one way or another. It's hard to get over that. Well, you don't get over it when your life is ended and you've been wrongfully convicted. What on earth are we thinking? What on earth are we thinking when it comes to allowing snitch testimony into our court? When we're uh, when we're directing the jurors to listen to snitch testimony, snitch testimony. If somebody who's already been convicted of a crime, and you know what? There are there's a snitch testimony. Is it, it, there's favors. There people are giving favors. Those that are jailhouse snitches, prison snitches. Um, let me see. I know that Melissa Hurry is trying to get through. I have to nine, one seven three Ooh, okay. It's three eight eight, Melissa. It's three eight eight. My bad. And Melissa, Melissa is coming on. Uh, Melissa Hurry, and she is an an ethics expert and um, and a, certainly an advocate extraordinaire. Uh, she is a regular contributor here. Just so happy to have her on with us tonight not happy about the subject matter but then again there's a little bit of bittersweetness going on because there was a big big win on friday in court we'll get into that just a little bit further it has to do with the oklahoma city attorney who thinks that he can just level off somebody off of the face of this earth because why sometimes we wonder why Why is it that there is this culture in Oklahoma City? Hello? Okay, why is it that there is a culture in Oklahoma City when there used to be Joyce Gilchrist, Bob Nancy, now they've passed away, Lord knows how many people. Were wrongfully convicted, but we know a bunch of them were. We don't know how many actually were put to death, actually. The statistics, however, across our country are absolutely startling when it comes to niche testimony. Why replace switch, niche testimony and consider that to be actually something that is ethical, that meets the prongs that needs to be met, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, when, with somebody's guilt, especially when there's no eyewitnesses, when there's no DNA whatsoever. But what about when, like in George Skates' case, what about when you're, the prosecution is relying only on snitch testimony? And, oh, yes, people get set free that have multiple lifetime sentences. We'll talk a little bit more, get caught up a little bit more on George Skates' case a little bit later, but we're going to talk about uh, Julius Jones. Marty, do we have Melissa on with us?
1: I'm here. Can you hear oh,
0: me? Oh, hi. Oh, you don't sound good. You sound kind of garbled.
1: All right. Um, give me one second.
0: Yes, definitely garbled. <laughs> while, she, while Melissa is, is doing that, we're going to talk. Well, going to Talk about Julius Jones's case. Yes, and it involves David Prater. Um, no, it's still, it's still kind of murky. I don't know what
1: it's- to do then.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, um, Marty, do we have somebody else on air that's causing some extra sound?
1: I'm not so sure. I don't know. I, 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 oh, took you a, sound I better. my you headphones
0: sound better. On. You, don't you sound much better. Great. Thank you. Um, okay. Before we move on to, uh, forgive me for the um, the confusion, but before we move on to Julius Jones, I'm just going to read briefly. This is a petition. Um, this is another victim of David Crater, the infamous David Prater, good. Thank you, Stephen Burke. She said that He said that you sound fine now. I think you do too. I'm going to need, read a quick uh, petition um, that I'd like people to consider signing. Where can you find it? You can find it on the Facebook page, Injustice in Oklahoma Exposed. Okay? We have, I'm going to read this to you. Mr. Johnson, Delbert Johnson, okay, Mr. Johnson was charged and convicted of first-degree felony murder, burglary in the death of John Tarver on February 11, 2007. Alleged co-defendant James Pollard was also charged with first-degree murder, but the state made a deal with him to drop the charge to accessory after the fact and sentenced to 20 years nonviolence to falsely testify against Mr. Johnson. Now, does this sound a little bit like, it, it, you know, he's not in prison yet, but he's going to go to prison. So let's use his testimony so we can nail somebody for this. Mr. Pollard was the only black male placed at the scene by his own confession and other witnesses. So he agreed he was there. The state theory was that the informant drug dealer, Anita Collar, who was a state's witness, sent Mr. Johnson and Pollard to collect money for drugs for her And get and things got out of hand and Johnson killed the victim and he and Pollard took his property but Anita's during Anita's interrogation she was adamant that she did not and would not send DJ Mr Johnson and Pollard to collect nothing for her because they're they're drug addicts. Anita said Mr Tarver would not call her and ask her to send him drugs but the ADA. At the time, Stephen Douche and Pam Kimbrough told the jury that Mr. Tarver called and asked her to send him some drugs, but not to send Mr. Johnson. And this made Johnson mad, and he went anyway, and this was motive. So that's the story, okay? Anita said she didn't know anything about John, the victim having a problem with DJ. This is Mr. Johnson. But that the victim did complain about a white guy named Gage taking his money to go get drugs and never brings money or drugs back. The state knew this information, but falsely still proceeded knowing it was perjured testimony. Okay They knew this was perjured testimony. At trial two years later, it needed to change her testimony to the victim. Did, and the victim did call for her for drugs, but not to send Mr. DJ J- Johnson. So she changed her testimony to agree that it was not Mr. Johnson who is now in prison for life. Unless we can get people to help him, um, they. So she agreed that it wasn't true that he she, he really wasn't sent. The testimony the caller gave did not corroborate. What the evidence revealed, Pollard testified that Mr. Johnson picked him up walking in a silver truck and asked if he wanted to make a lick, meaning to hustle up some money, and they pulled up in the victim's driveway, and D.J. gave him a rock of cocaine to sell the victim, and the victim wouldn't give money or the rock of cocaine back. Oh, dear. Drugs, drugs, drugs. Pollard said that D.J. appeared out of nowhere and pushed past him and walked into the victim's home, and they walked to the back of the victim's home to the kitchen where Mr. Johnson choked the victim from the back with his arm, and that Pollard helped drag the victim's body to the bedroom where he heard beating and stomping noises. But the evidence reveal a different story. By blood splatter starting from the front door throughout the victim's home that could not have happened that way, Pollard said it did not. There was no corpus delicti with testimony of Pollard and the evidence collected at the scene, including the injuries the victim sustained. Seventy-four. Listen to this. Seventy-four DNA samples of evidence were collected at the crime scene and submitted to Oklahoma, Oklahoma City Police Department. Oop, forgive me. I just <coughs> threw. Find my way back. Um. Uh, were uh, to the police department seriology. Kyla England uh, was the person who got it to be tested by the Oklahoma uh, detective Roland Garrett, but only three of those 74 were tested and the results were one sample was to
1: uh,
0: develop a small sample was to develop a profile, file and the other two results in the victim, and Pollard not being excluded. So, okay, not being excluded, but that, that does not mean that they're included. 71 samples was were left untested due to the cost, according to Kyla Engle, England. so she decided not to test the remaining evidence deviating from protocol after a suspicious phone call from Detective Garrett and testified that trial counsel Jason Spannett did not request testing or did not require testing. Oh, boy. Um, Almost done. I've just got to go back to where I was. Forgive me for a minute. I hate to have this quiet time. Okay. Uh, Mr. Mr. Johnson rode to a shell station with Pollard and is on surveillance at around 4 a.m. The state led the jury to believe that since Mr. Johnson was with Pollard at the shell station, that he was with Pollard at the victim's home during the murder, and the jury believed it based on conjecture and more speculation. Mr. Lee Robinson testified on behalf of the defendant that Pollard came to his residence in a silver truck with property and credit cards attempting to trade for drugs and told Mr. Robinson that he had to knock a white boy out. Mr. Pollard went to several 7-Eleven stores throughout the Metro in the silver truck attempting to use the victim's credit card before coming into contact with Mr. Johnson. Trial counsel Jason Spanish ignored the calls from his alibi witness and refused to call him to testify because he is his brother, Johnson's brother, and although he presented an alibi defense to the jury, he did not prepare or investigate his case. These are the public defenders, folks. These are the public defenders. Knowingly, false testimony was going to proceed, which led Johnson to being wrongfully convicted. Oklahoma Police Department detective Chris Miller testified that during the investigation, nothing placed nor did any witness place Mr. Johnson at the crime scene other than James Pollard, who's who witnessed evidence and his own admission was the only black man at the scene on two occasions the night the victim was killed along with the silver truck. Those Oklahoma City Police Detective Depart- Department detectives were present during trial and allowed testimony they knew was false, so uncorrected. This happens, people. This really happens. Mr. Johnson has been fighting for years to have the three samples of DNA tested, retested, and the additional 71 samples of DNA tested to prove that Delbert Johnson was not there. So it's Delbert Johnson, excuse me, and, and that he is not responsible for the murder, burglary of John Tarver. But the Oklahoma County District Attorney, David Prater, and his assistant, Jennifer Heinsberger, refused to allow Mr. Johnson access to the DNA evidence to test and judge Ray Elliott ruled in favor of this injustice. Judge Ray Elliott ruled in favor of not having that DNA tested. How is that for a judge? How do you like that, the difference between somebody spending their lives free or not? This is just a small preview of unjust practices taking place in Oklahoma County by District Attorney David Prater to keep an innocent man in prison. This case and I cry out for help and for justice. This was written by Mr. Johnson. Anyone interested in helping him, please contact Mike Arnett, who is his attorney, one of the, the only attorney that I know that I can, that is trustworthy and trustworthy. <laughs> His attorney's name is four zero five seven six seven zero five two two David Arnett. My goodness, you know these names and these patterns—they keep showing up over and over and over again, don't they, Melissa? Are you yeah, here? they sure do. It's, yeah,
1: I'm here. Yeah. It's a, it's a All bit right. of a, well, we've got to be lying tonight, but I can hear you. But okay. yeah, they, it's just. I mean, I wasn't familiar with this case, so I just listened to, (laughs) excuse me, as you were going through the petition. But um, it sounds like another testify against someone, get a deal, even though you're the one who really committed the crime, kind of thing. If I'm not mistaken, so I well, it's just you know, and I'm only just starting to get to know
0: the case. I've got the docket number. I've just gone through it a little bit, so I can't say that I've done a tremendous amount of due diligence uh, quite yet on it, but well, it just no, brings
1: occasionally a a Oh, yeah, it's pad- the pattern that they like to follow, um, informant testimony and misconduct.
0: <laughs> Melissa Hurry is with us tonight, and she is, as I said, she's an advocate and she's an ethics expert and Melissa can you tell us a little bit about yourself she's a regular contributor for those of you uh, you already know but for those of you who are listening in tonight and have not heard her
1: um, uh, sure let's hear about you okay um, well I as you I work for the office of state ethics I'm here in the state of Connecticut um, I've been there for about six years now and before that I was in uh, the field of criminal law as a paralegal at a um, family and criminal law firm for 17 years. So I've been in law for about 23 years now. And um, I also advocate. I take a big interest in people who are wrongfully convicted. And so I've been studying wrongful convictions for a while. And I am also an advocate to abolish the death penalty.
0: And I can see why. You know, I didn't always feel that way, um, but... Mm -hmm. I have to say that you know it always tugged at my heartstrings, but I, but I I always also thought, my God, if somebody ever did something to remove my children from this earth, you know, if I didn't get to them first, you know what I mean? I know exactly
1: <laughs> what you mean. Yeah. There's a lot of people that have that opinion too. I just feel that it is um, innocent people have been sentenced to death. Innocent people right. have been executed. Some doesn't like to admit that, but we know that innocent people have been executed. And there are other ways. I mean, I don't disagree that there are people that are not fit to be in society, maybe now, or you know, maybe yeah. 20 years, or maybe never. But there are other forms of punishment than the death penalty. And with the system that gets it wrong too much, there's no room, there's no room for error when you're talking about somebody's life.
0: No, there's no room for error. And the problem is um, there's far too much error. Uh, and, and we're dealing with snitch testimony. We're dealing with, you know, uh, also prosecutors that are relying on snitch testimony. And you have to wonder why. Why are they relying on snitch testimony if they can't find anything else? And the kinds of deals that are made, it, um, you know, of
1: course the snitches hmm. will tell them anything they want to hear. Absolutely. They do it because they can, and they get away with it. And there's Mm -hmm. not enough states that have legislation that protect people from jailhouse informant testimony. And so there's many states that use jailhouse informants, and they build a case around whoever they they can get as many people to point the finger at, and there's really little to no repercussions for it when it does come to light. And, it's all about getting the wins. Not, you know, not for every, not for every DA, not for every prosecutor. But this happens too much to to just say, oh, it's only a few, because it, it happens way too much.
0: The prosecutor has so much power, as we were talking about earlier. And if you're if you're a good one, fine, they don't abuse it. Mm-hmm. But if you're one that just cares about the wins, being reelected or scratching somebody else's back uh, because they scratch yours. Uh, society is in big trouble, and we know that to be a fact.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, the, like you said, the prosecutor holds more power than anybody in the system. They decide who to charge. They decide what to charge him with. They decide whether or not they should be detained at, at pretrial trial i that mean, sure the, the judge um, granting bail, but the prosecutor has a big sway in, in that, too. They, they decide what type of sentences they're going to seek. So they have... The majority of the power when it comes to sending people to prison. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, they they really do. They
0: they really do. And, and in this case, we know that regarding Julius Jones, that it wasn't mm-hmm. David Prater who actually tried. Uh, his case. Now, Julius Jones, for those that, that don't know, I'm, why don't you let our listeners know briefly, for those that don't know, because you have studied the case, you've been on top of it for a long time. Um, so why don't you just tell a little bit about Julius Jones' case, and then we'll talk about what happened on Friday. And who yes, yes. uh, uh, um a failed, thank God, uh, petition to the court.
1: So, yeah, I mean, like you said, uh, David Prada was not the the DA at the time that Julius was convicted, but he hasn't shown us anything to to show us that the culture of that office has changed at all. And he is so resistant to really looking at the facts in this case. So Julius Jones is on death row in Oklahoma. He's been there for, well, he's been in prison for 22 years. Um, Most of it has been on death row. He was convicted in a case where there was informant testimony and these were career informants that were involved in his case. Uh, there was a co-defendant who many people believe was the actual shooter in, in the case. And um, he did 15 years. And let me, let me say it was a murder of a gentleman by the name of Paul Howell. It was a carjacking. Mr. Howell um, was murdered back in July of 1999. So um, I want to say that, you know, sometimes people think that when you're advocating for the person you believe was wrongfully convicted, that there's no thoughts for the victim. Yes, there is thoughts for the victim. The victim should never be forgotten in any of these matters. But the thing is, there's no justice for the victim or the victim's family when you wrongfully convict somebody. That's injustice for everybody. So for the failure to see and I don't understand how they can't see it, because if anybody doesn't know Julius Jones's case, Julius Jones has over 6 million supporters who have signed his petition. Just in the past couple of weeks, there's been a, a whole explosion in his case of prominent people um, going to social media and, and pleading to Governor Stitt, like, you have to fix this. This is wrong. And it can't just be, you know, because it, it can't just be over 6 million people They see this case, and they see the facts of the case, and for some reason, the DA's office doesn't want to look at anything to do with the facts in this case that point to a pattern in Oklahoma that has happened to 10 other people in Oklahoma, only that we know of because they've been exonerated from death row. And out of those 10 exonerations from death row in Oklahoma, seven of those cases included informant testimony, six of them included misconduct. So you have to look at this and say, is there a pattern here? Are they wrongfully convicting people to death? Are they killing innocent people? So as as much as people, they don't want to look at it for whatever reason out of the DA's office. Everybody else sees it. So as resistant as as they were, there was a hearing on Friday, and um, David Prater, the DA, was requesting that two board members be removed from the board of pardon and parole who are scheduled to hear Julius's commutation petition tomorrow. And this was, and he just filed this last week. He Um, passed through the first stage. Oh yes. He passed through the first stage back in March. Mm -hmm. And so um, the DA's office knew that back in March, that he was going to have a stage two hearing, uh, it was scheduled for September 13th. It wasn't scheduled all the way back in March, but it's been scheduled for a while. And so um, in an attempt to remove two board members from hearing his case, which would have left a three-member board to hear his commutation application, which has been pending for almost two years. Next month would be two years. Mm-hmm. And, and,
0: so, and Dr. Stitt had appointed these two board members, um last year
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, so adam ago, and uh,
1: were appointed by governor state yes right and, and
0: and i believe it's it's um out of luck that is now that like he is the, the overseer of of the pardon and parole board he's the director
1: or the um he's the chair the, uh, of the he's, chair yeah, yeah. so mhm so um now Prater was asking to have them removed because he's claiming that they lack impartiality in Julius's case. And only claiming this in Julius's case. I don't know the reason for it. There's really nothing that he could say that could indicate that they have any kind of partiality towards Julius's case. So he sought relief in the Oklahoma Supreme Court, which I'm not sure why they they thought the jurisdiction lied there i disagree i don't think it i don't think it did at all and maybe the court agreed but because they denied the court, his request
0: court they did they they did entertain the petition and and yep and they and they and they even gave him the ability to um to petition out of time prater prater's office didn't even request permission to petition out of time.
1: Well, it was so, he didn't file um, his request until um, September 8th. That's when he filed his, his request. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was an application to assume original jurisdiction and issue a writ of prohibition and or in the alternative, a writ of mandamus directed to Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board Members Adam Luck and Kelly Doyle. So, Amanda is yeah. saying he, he's saying that there was no other relief for him to seek, but the Supreme Court. But that's that's not true. I believe it was the um, district court that would that would have heard this. But this that's decision. neither here nor there because it, the Supreme Court did entertain the application.
0: Right. So they, they so they and, you know let, you know they loosened the leash. They let him do that, mm-hmm. and uh, and they allowed the testimony to take place, but they disagreed with Prater. And that could be the difference maker between Julius Jones' life or death.
1: Absolutely, because <laughs> in, in this was heard on Friday. Um both you know, both parties were heard. Even the the board members who he was asking to he first asked them wow. to recuse themselves, they did not. And so they had representation as well on Friday and the court found that apparently there was no reason to have Adam Luck nor Kelly Doyle removed from that board and they denied uh, District Attorney Prater's request he he wasn't there to argue the motion himself somebody else from the DA's office was there
0: he's a coward that's why he has other
1: people doing their own dirty his, his dirty work
0: and not a very and it was, good job
1: it, yep it, it was um, Sandra Howell Elliott who was there from the DA's office and, and she argued the, the request and um, there was a uh, there was one, one there, there was nothing that could point to them being impartial. Uh, so it's for, like, for him you, to claim
0: uh, Melissa, if, if, they, mm-hmm. if there is a conflict of interest, then with this case, then there would have to be a conflict of
1: interest with every other case that comes in front of the board.
0: So well, on this earth.
1: Is, and, this, and, and this is what else um, DA Prado was claiming is that because um, Adam Luck and Kelly Doyle, uh, work in the in the area of reentry, like you know, like with social services kinds kinds of things. Um, that's the kind of background that they have. So they work for nonprofits. So he's claiming that by them letting people out of prison, they're gaining per- financially from it and personally and financially from it because those people are going to these facilities where but that they But he only
0: filed it for one person step down for this case only. <laughs> exactly. Well, he was
1: trying to say that they should, that in general, they're, they're biased on the board because of that, but you have to look at Oklahoma statute because Oklahoma statute requires two board members to have that type of background. So that's why they were appointed by Governor Sitt because they have, Adam Luck and Kelly Doyle have that background, that social services background, dealing with issues like mental health and homelessness and drug addiction. So it's only fitting that they, the board have members, those types of things, because this is, these are people that are in prison. They have these types of issues. It doesn't mean they need to be there for the rest of their life. Right. So to, right. Have, to have a board that can understand, you know, how somebody can be rehabilitated and what best practices are to rehabilitate someone and those steps that you need to take is only beneficial. But he was trying to say that because they have that, that kind of background and because of what they do – that they 're benefiting from being on the board, which, which was to me was completely ridiculous, because if you are claiming a personal financial gain isn't that an issue for your ethics commission? <laughs> I would think right
0: right, right, exactly. How did they get on there to begin with? Oh my goodness gracious, and if you want to talk about conflicts of interest, the one that mm. finally um, quote unquote resigned um, he had he had more conflicts of interest than uh, than I can even think of. I, I was, I was yeah. trying to think about to compare it to and, and be a little witty, but I, I just can't be. Um, it, that he was a, a judge that put a lot of people in, in prison and and, and uh, believed to put a lot in wrongfully. And he's also an ex-judge, a retired judge, and he also uh, had said publicly that he will never say, he'll never give the green card to a, a violent offender. Well then, why is he on the board? Why is he on the board? You know it,
1: it, exactly to make a statement like that. No, I mean that—that's not impartiality, right? So I—I I, I know it's. It, it, I guess it just didn't go both ways, but I see this filing. Um, it was just a desperate attempt to stop this commutation hearing, and they've been trying to stop it. They, I know we spoke about this last time we were on, but the Attorney General had filed a notice with the Court of Criminal Appeals to schedule execution dates for seven people on death row, Julius Jones being one of them. And the Court of Criminal Appeals still has not scheduled any execution dates. So it it was a whole – they created a whole chaotic mess. And luckily, the justice was served on Friday with the last straw being that – Adam Luck and Kelly Doyle are going to be sitting on that board tomorrow when they hear Julius Jones's commutation application. Right.
0: And, okay. So we're going to jump back to that. We're going to jump back to that. But first, I want our listeners to know that don't already know the mm-hmm. stunt that was pulled by the acting attorney general's office uh, that that uh, moved up the execution of these
1: seven uh, men. Well, he tried to. He tried to, but for the for
0: those well, she, execution it's a dates she? yeah what's that it's a
1: she, it's a she the sitting attorney general now it's, no it's the attorney no? general is no no yeah he tried to um have the criminal court of appeals schedule execution dates but they have not scheduled those dates yet and i can surmise there may be an issue with that because there is a federal lawsuit it's an eighth amendment issue And it is regarding whether or not the protocol that Oklahoma uses for its lethal injections is cruel and unusual. Eighth Amendment constitutional issue. So this is a little, we talk, I know we talked about this, but if you would like, I'll go through it quickly again. So a suit was filed on behalf of death row inmates as to whether or not the protocol that Oklahoma is using for their lethal injection is cruel and unusual. Now for people who don't know, Back in 2015, they had um, botched executions in Oklahoma using drugs that deterred from the statutory requirements for their three-drug protocol. So they issued a moratorium and stopped all, all, death, all executions back in 2015. So now they want to resume executions. So they asked all death row inmates what type of alternative method they would select for their execution. Seven of those inmates did not answer that question. And so there, there, there was a federal lawsuit. The federal court says that the issue of whether or not the protocol is cruel and unusual needs to be heard. They're going to schedule a trial. That trial is probably not going to occur until February of next year, at least. Mm -hmm. But what they didn't do is stay the executions of the seven people who did not select an alternative method of execution. So what the attorney general did is because there was no stay by the federal district court on those seven individuals, the attorney general requested that the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals schedule them for execution dates. And he did that on August 25th. But what yeah. else he didn't do – I'm sorry, not August 25th, August 12th. Okay. And so and when, uh, I guess there have been so many things that have been filed. He did not wait. The federal judgment was issued on August 12th. The attorney general filed a notice on August 25th. I'm sorry, I mixed those two up. But what okay. he didn't do was wait for the period – for those individuals who weren't covered by that stay of execution to seek relief on, on that federal judgment, they had until September 8th to seek relief. He filed a notice for execution dates to be scheduled on August 25th. So they still had a period of time where they can object to that federal judgment, which I believe they did. Um, I know that Julius' legal team objected on his behalf, and I believe the Oklahoma um, Federal Public Defender's Office filed objections on behalf of the others. If it was all of them, I'm not sure, but I know they did file objections. So now this is all sitting in the Criminal Court of Appeals. You have the notice to, to schedule execution dates. You have the objections from the seven individuals that they tried to schedule execution dates for. They sought an execution date for one individual, John Grant, of October 7th, and they were seeking an execution date for Julius of October 28th. Now, all this, while they know that Julius Jones is scheduled for a commutation hearing on September 13th, but yet you're in a rush to, re, to request an execution date, and my question being, protocol is found to be cruel and unusual, then how can you take those seven individuals because they didn't answer, provide an answer as to how they would prefer to be executed and say that the state doesn't cover them. If it's cruel and unusual, it's cruel and unusual for everybody. Right. Right. But because
0: of technical error, supposedly, or whatever, because they didn't say, oh, kill me another way. Uh, I, I, they didn't provide that then, then they suddenly don't have the same rights as anybody else does when this is up well, in
1: front of the court? Are you kidding me? I believe, I believe at least some of the inmates, or at least one of them, uh, is, did not pick an alternative method of execution for religious reasons. hmm So that's another issue. Mm-hmm. Oh, but what boy. They, what, should, what, I, I, what they shouldn't have done for the criminal court of appeals to schedule execution They thought any of this is pending, Exactly. And whether or not the federal, the, whether or not the district court, the federal court's judgment not covering those those seven individuals is right. I don't think so either. Right.
0: And you know, it's it's a good thing that there are some of these attorneys that they're on their toes, that they're Absolutely. actually on their toes, and uh, thank goodness, and that they're not afraid, uh, because there are yes. quite a few that that actually are really af- afraid. And um, and then there's quite a few that are complacent, and they're fine as long as they've got a as long as they've got their career, you know. And then there's and then there's those that are just outright creeps, corrupt and, and, and malfeasant. And uh, again, they just they they don't care. They don't care because you, you know reversing something uh, means that there isn't a, a closed case. And that's not good on the department. That's not good on the, the prosecutors. You know, it doesn't look good. Um, so everybody has each other's back. Where it's like that.
1: So, but, and the whole thing they're failing to see through all of this is all the questions. I mean, they know they're there in Julius Jones's case, and all the patterns that we've seen before in other cases that have followed this the same kind of of pattern the informants the misconduct the pro- the pros- the prosecutor's misconduct the da's misconduct withholding information not releasing files they all go hand in hand if you look at the national registry of exonerations and you, and you look at their database and you say okay let me look and see how many cases involved perjured or informant testimony and you can see that and then you can also see what type of um Misconduct was there. Was there misconduct? Was there prosecutorial misconduct? And in what form? And it is always not always, but three quarters of the time, they are. It includes withholding of information, withholding of exculpatory evidence, Brady violations.
0: hmm hmm Absolutely. Um, this is it's it's just absolutely nuts, and and just the fact that. Testimony is, is still, you know, this is where we need to get our legislators involved. Absolutely. For sure. Um, Absolutely. I'm looking, I'm looking at um, a law blog. It's by camonlaw.com. Um, so you might wonder why a jury would convict someone based on the, on the word of a convicted felon. It's it's a legitimate question, but they keep doing it. Prosecutors keep turning to snitches for testimony that may help their cases, and they keep vouching for that testimony to juries who buy it, largely because the prosecutors claim it's true. You're supposed to believe, right? These are people that you believe you're supposed to believe, right? And there are some, you know, that you definitely can, and there's plenty that you know you can't. The result is, as the appeal notes, the criminal informants that they're And their bad testimony play an outsized role in the nation's wrongful convictions. They contribute to nearly half of all the wrongful convictions, which makes snitching the lead cause of wrongful convictions in U.S. capital cases. Approximately 15% of all convictions later overturned by DNA evidence. Thousands of criminal cases every year with varying degrees of, uh, snitch, uh, of snitch testimony it is absolutely something that only weighs in to benefit a prosecutor who relies on snitch testimony and there's no benefit otherwise none whatsoever juries need to understand the dangers of snitch testimony the greatest problem is the injuries can buy is that juries can buy these stories. After all, if you go mm-hmm. to court, it's the jury members who hold your fate in their hands. You want them to understand how unreliable the testimony is. And this is, so who's made, who's made up of juries? Everybody who's, who makes up juries, everybody who's listening right now can be called mm-hmm. in, can be called in and asked to sit on a jury. So remember this whenever remember this because everybody should be called in uh it doesn't mean you'll make it because of, they might feel that oh if you have a brother who's a prosecutor or a brother or a sister who's a public defender that you might weigh in more one way you might be biased right but guess what mm-hmm. it's very important as a, as a potential juror to know that snitch testimony is markedly unreliable and there needs to be DNA and other uh, much uh, much else to convict somebody. How can this meet the prongs of sending somebody to prison for life or to death row beyond a shadow of a doubt when it's, when when prosecution is relying solely? This happens too often. Solely. on Solely. Exactly. Own. And and we, we, we see it, Melissa, don't we? And and this is, to me, this, this is, you know, holding people hostage for the rest of their lives, and that's murder, and, and, and murder. Is, and
1: these, I, I, I give, when I give you statistics, they come. I want to I let everybody know that these statistics come from databases from the National Registry of Exonerations and the Death Penalty Information Center. Those two sites are invaluable to this kind of information because it's the only mm-hmm. place we can really see it in, in a whole database format. So I have the spreadsheets from both of those. I'm doing my thesis on this subject that we're talking about for my master's degree. So, so, you, so you if you are look, digging, digging because I want to, because I think it needs to be known that we are beyond where just DNA evidence is going to clear somebody's name. It's, it's beyond just junk. You know, we've been through this. Junk science has been used to wrongfully convict people. You know, we have hair analysis. You you have um, uh, bite mark analysis. That we, it's all been proven to be junk science. And so there were a lot of people convicted from, from that type of junk science, right? So mm-hmm. Innocence Projects has been, for years now, exonerating people, you know, using DNA that wasn't used before or, you know, the the DNA of the person who was convicted and ended up being the wrong person's DNA. So we have DNA as the culprit to wrongful convictions. But what we have now, like we've been saying, is snitch testimony and misconduct, and it's official misconduct, and it's from police and prosecutors. So if you look at the National Registry of Exonerations, They break it all down for you. So last year, 2020, they had 129 exonerations, Exonerations: people who have been wrongfully convicted and later to be found actually innocent. So out of those 129 exonerations, 103 of them included perjured testimony, almost all of them.
0: And were they snitches?
1: Well, they call it perjured testimony, but yeah, that's what it is. And the, the majority of them are incentivized. Uh, they're jailhouse informants. Mm-hmm. That's what they call them. They they right. have something. They either have something over their head that they can be convicted of and go to jail, or they have something that they've already of that could give them a, they, their testimony earns them a lesser sentence. There, there's usually some kind of incentive. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and and we know that, that that snitches aren't the only ones who perjure. We're well
1: aware not of that the ones, they don't. A, a good majority of them don't just do this one time. They do it in multiple cases. So they use the mm-hmm. testimony of an informant in more than just one case. hmm And mm-hmm. so I no, mean, not, I know well, here, here in Connecticut, we have legislation that deals with that issue with testimony of jailhouse informants. And certain data needs to be kept. So when somebody is going to be used as an informant, it needs to be disclosed to the defense who they are, are they in prison, do they have a prior record, do they have any current convictions that are hanging over their head, um, have they done it before, have they testified before. So there's a whole bunch of information that needs to be revealed before you can call that person as a witness. Not all states have that. And even here in Connecticut, we need to keep better data as far as the databases for, you know, anybody who is used as an informant and their testimony is used. But it starts with creating the legislation. And we have to recognize that this is the majority of these cases. These are, the, these are now the components that make up wrongful convictions. And another thing is that is not really there as a statistic because the court doesn't like to call it ineffective counsel, but it's like a perfect storm. You have informant testimony, you have misconduct, whether it be by police, prosecutors, or both, and then you have an attorney for the defense that's either very inexperienced or way over their head or overwhelmed, especially in capital cases. And so you combine all that, and that's a perfect recipe for a wrongful conviction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. in death instances... It, it, the, the number is very prevalent in death sentences as well, because if you look at the Death Penalty Information Center, they keep statistics on people who have been exonerated from death row. And since 1973, they've had uh, 185 exonerations from death row. And according to the statistics, over two-thirds include perjured testimony, about 68%. That's outrageous. Outrageous. It is.
0: And so, what do you what do you think the the incentive is here for the? Um, why don't you talk to our listeners a little bit about that? What's the incentive for um, for the snitches? And you know, what what have you seen uh, being given to the snitches? Like how far are they willing to go? And what what's the incentive once again for the prosecutors?
1: Well, the prosecutors, it, it's the the ones that do it that engage in, in using this type of testimony are the ones that win at all costs, get the win. Get get right. a case built up against who whoever. You know what I mean? Like in, in Julius Jones's case, they had two informants and a co defendant that all pointed the finger at Julius. Now the two informants in Julius's case are career informants. They're career criminals. They have records, um extensive ones. And so um were they being allowed to run their criminal activity because they were informants for the DA perhaps Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it was known what they were doing. It it was, it was known that um, one of them ran a chop shop and and the other um, informant had a a career of carjackings. And and this is the crime that we're talking about, a carjacking and a murder. So how Mm -hmm. do you not ask these questions? And and one of the informants was involved in two other that we know of, um, wrongful convictions of death row, to death row. There was two um, individuals that were wrongfully convicted to death, and this particular informant was also involved in their cases. My goodness. So mm-hmm. you, you know
0: nothing like you know checking out somebody's credibility before they're put on stand and 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 you know did did his public defender or or attorney at the time try to discredit or did that come to light after the fact?
1: Well, I there was no there wasn't Julius's attorney didn't even call a witness on his behalf. Not a witness. No alibi witnesses, which he had. Um, nothing. Um, he, he rested after the state rested their case. So nothing was contested. Oh, okay. And whether or not he was going with, well, the jury will see through it. The jury will know that it didn't happen that way because this DA's office at the time was run by Macy. Macy wasn't the one who tried the case, but it was still his office. And right. They just, I mean, Macy was known for making inappropriate comments in the courtroom that could prejudice the jury and was always getting, always got away with it. So there were all kinds of things that were going on. And I don't, under, I don't know that people realize that these things can happen. It's not by far a foolproof system. Just because someone's found guilty doesn't mean they are. And right. I can't say it in any plainer of a way. Right. Well,
0: we know what it's like, you know, most of us know what it's like in the outside world, okay, just to be accused of doing something that we didn't do. But let's, like, multiply that. Let's mega multiply that on steroids, and and, and then suddenly you're facing a death sentence or a life sentence. Um, mm-hmm. We know what it's already like for those that should have had uh, much shorter sentences and then reenter into society, uh, and, you know, and it took decades longer than it should have uh, for them to, you know, go through the process, but are still grateful and even humble that, you know, they are being given that second chance, even though that they were wrongfully charged, wrongfully, which means wrongfully sentenced, you know, because they're mm-hmm. just happy to get out. They're just happy to get out at this point point, live your life, let, let, enough, let it go, let it go, let it go. I just want to live my life. We know that there are people out there, there are people that are being released now they're like yep. that and some of the most polite, humble people that you can possibly want to know. Now, I'm oh, certainly, I, I believe in, you know, I, I believe that, you know, there needs to be law and order. I believe that uh, people need to, you know, to be punished for bad acts and all with, you know, the proper punishment and, you know, based on how, you know, a prior offender, based, based on the, the crime itself and based on and and then when someone somebody's being punished and if they are behind bars what are we doing to rehabilitate these people we know that the majority of people that are behind bars right now need rehabilitation and they can be rehabilitated but the prisons are for profit so let's just mm. keep not helping anybody who might have had a rough upbringing who this is all they ever knew this is all they ever knew what to do in life and, and so instead of giving them a chance at actually living like a normal person having a life and actually rehabilitating them to make it safe for them to re-enter into society let's just keep punishing them what is wrong with our system melissa
1: it it, it, it is so far from being rehabilitative as it is supposed to be that it is i mean you have a prison population in Oklahoma that I believe is over twenty six thousand. And that that is just ridiculous. There's more um, women
0: incarcerated in Oklahoma than in the entire world.
1: Mm. Yeah. Uh, the, highest highest we need reform. Women, the
0: highest population of women per
1: capita is what I meant to say. Forgive me. Yeah, per capita. And, you know, it's it's not just Oklahoma that's over-incarcerating people. It's not just Oklahoma that's convicting innocent people to death. And there's other states that are unfortunately doing the same thing. But um, it's just that this, this DA's office, um, Oklahoma County, I, I just, they, they, so Oklahoma executes more people per capita than any other state. So, I mean, I know Texas leads the race in the amount of executions, but if you look at it on a per capita basis, Oklahoma is number one in that category. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and about a third of them come, well, actually more than a third come from one county, Oklahoma County. Oh,
0: oh, yeah, Oklahoma County is terrible. Tulsa County is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. uh, let's think about some others. Oh well, we know that. Oh goodness, Lawton. Where's Lawton out of? Um, What's that uh, county? Um, M- M- uh, goodness, I wish I could think of the name of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there's uh, yeah. So there, there's definitely. Um, it's more in certain concentrated areas. But then we head on over to like um, Hughes County, the little. You know, towns that encompass Hughes County, you know, like Calvin, Oklahoma and how Wetumpka, Oklahoma, they were, Wetumpka had a horrible mayor for about a year and a half until they finally got rid of him. You now, we had them on the show on a very regular basis trying to help expose that whole situation, and uh, and that worked out quite nicely, but it was horrible while they were there. In the little town of Calvin, Oklahoma, you've got uh, a, a couple hundred people that live there, and it's been the good old boy system forever and a day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it doesn't affect enough people for anybody to care what they do. And, and that's a problem. That's definitely a problem. But it happens um, more often than not. And people just don't realize that it really, really, truly does happen.
1: Absolutely. And we, we know that there is a, um, you know, it's not just people being over-sentenced or wrongfully convicted to death. there's a lot of people who are getting or have gotten life sentences in Oklahoma with real questionable cases. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, the death cases get a lot of attention because, you know, someone's life is on the line. But, you know, at the same time, you have individuals who are sentenced to life without parole at the very, very young ages of 18, 19, 20 years old that were involved in... in I'm sorry, what was that?
0: How old was Julius?
1: Julius was 19 years old.
0: He was a child. When he
1: was, when, he was a, when he was arrested, yes. He was 19 years old, and he had just turned 19, I believe. He had just turned 19, because all this happened just after his birthday. Mm-hmm. And so he has been in prison longer than he's been out in other words he's he, been in prison for 22 years. He went in when he was right. 19. Right. Okay.
0: So um so now let's talk uh, let's talk a little bit about what happened in his case and then let's talk about what's happening tomorrow that is absolutely huge because a lot of people have heard of julius jones's case you know this is got got international attention this is absolutely huge and as you said earlier you feel that um his case can actually change the way um the law is or you know you said that you said that earlier to me can you repeat what you said
1: well, I think that his ca- his case is unprecedented because there's never been a death row inmate that's gone to a stage two commutation hearing. First of all, so that that's that's unprecedented. That means um, that it's never get it through. It's stage never the happened. First it's never happened. And um, when AG Hunter was still the attorney general for Oklahoma, um, mm-hmm. the issue even went before him whether or not a death row inmate could be heard in a commutation hearing before the Board of Pardon and Parole, and he said yes. So then Julius's commutation application was scheduled. They, they moved him through Stage 1, and so he was scheduled for a Stage 2 hearing. Now Stage 2 is where they hear um, delegates speak on his behalf, and they make a decision on whether or not they will commute his there, there are different options they, you know, they can commute him to life without parole. They can commute him to life with parole. They can commute him to time served. So wow. they make the recommendation on whether or not they're going to commute him and under like what circumstance. And then that recommendation goes to governor Stitt for the final say. And I believe he has 60 days to respond. So. So if they
0: commute him to life, with parole, then would he mm-hmm. be going up for parole every couple of years, like somebody I else who he,
1: Well, I believe he would be eligible for parole now with the 22 years already been served. Right. So, um, right. Those are the, the those are the different scenarios. Um, and, but and the
0: huge difference maker is he's innocent. He's innocent yeah. so let's talk about the case a little let's talk about what happened uh what happened in his case and uh if, if you don't mind and then we're going to talk about you know tomorrow again tomorrow if you yeah. think that this is not highly anticipated uh throughout oklahoma and be far beyond and that the eyes of uh, the, the the legal eyes that are going to be watching this it's absolutely incredible, just like you said, unprecedented. Let's
1: talk about his case. So Julius Jones was convicted in 2002 for the murder of Paul Howell, and he was sentenced to death. Um, he was the, the murder of Paul Howell occurred in 1999, and it was it was alleged that Julius was. Uh, was engaged in a carjacking with Mr. Howell. And in the process of that, Mr. Howell was shot and he was killed. So it was um, alleged that Julius was the shooter and that his co-defendant Christopher Jordan was, was there, but he wasn't the shooter. So Christopher Jordan was also sentenced, but he wasn't sentenced to death. Um, The only evidence that they had was the testimony of two informants, Kermit Lottie, who ran a chop shop, and Liddell King, who had an extensive criminal background and was um, known to steal cars. So with the testimony of the two informants and the testimony of Christopher Jordan pointing the finger at Julius, Julius was arrested for the murder. And like I said, that was in 1999, and he was convicted to death in 2002. So he's been on death row ever since then. Uh, there's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, reasons to why um, that points to Julius's innocence. So um, just the fact that their, their career informants that we, we used in the testimony, Christopher Jordan was the star witness. Um, he, he claims that he was the getaway driver but not the trigger man. So, Which um, means
0: that who had to be their trigger man,
1: right. So, the so they're pointing point- the finger at Julius. Julius is, is the one they're pointing the finger at to have shot and killed Mr. Howell. But what else happened, too, um, is that Christopher Jordan admitted to three different individuals that it was him that killed Mr. Howell and not Julius. And those three different individuals were were all inmates. Um, One of them was Emanuel Littlejohn. The other was Christopher Berry. And then there was a third from Arkansas, um, Roderick Wesley, I believe his name was, who just came forward not too long ago to say that, you know, Christopher Jordan had told him the same thing. And these witnesses signed affidavits saying that Christopher Mm -hmm. Jordan told him this. Now, listen to this carefully because... When they came forward with this, I believe Emmanuel Littlejohn came forward um, in late 99, early 2000, and I believe it, Christopher Berry came a little after that in 2000. And they both said that Christopher Jordan told them he was going to be sentenced to 30 years, but he was only going to serve 15 years. Now, this is way back then. And Christopher Jordan mm-hmm. surely did only serve 15 years because Christopher Jordan walked out of prison in 2014. Mm-hmm. So how do you not question that? How would they have known, short of Christopher Jordan telling them what was going to happen, but they weren't seen mm-hmm. as credible?
0: Yeah, it, it, yeah it, it, isn't that amazing? Absolutely you, amazing because yeah. here we got, you know, they'll take the snitch testimony that, you know, when people are given favors, right, or reduce sentences or whatnot, but they won't. Take the testimony of other snitches, okay? Exactly. Snitches have
1: nothing to gain. That have nothing to exactly. gain. Only the ones that nothing
0: have nothing to gain at to all. Gain, that's the key too. That they'd be nothing credible. to
1: gain. None of them had anything to gain by coming forward and saying this. And it, it, you know, if that's not enough, Julius didn't even match the description of the only eyewitness who was Paul Howell's sister, who was in the vehicle when this happened. She described a man that had um, hair that, like, hung down t- towards the back of, of his neck, like hair that was, a stocking cap was worn by the shooter, but there was hair that was sticking out from beneath, underneath the stocking cap, so and at that's
0: the time, his, that wasn't Julius, his hairstyle at the no, time, right? no,
1: there was a picture of Julius that existed, I think that was taken nine days before this shooting had occurred where Julius had like almost a military type of cut, a really close shaved cut. Christopher Jordan had cornrows. If you don't know what cornrows are, they're braids. And when you, when you secure the end of a cornrow, there's hair that sticks out from the end of it, like a, like a regular braid. And so this, the only eyewitness testified to hair sticking out from underneath the stocking cap. And when you look at the picture of Julius, there's no hair to have been sticking out.
0: And that is just
1: – that's just such a
0: compelling argument just right there.
1: Yep. Julius um, has alibis his his parents, his sister. Um, he was home with them, and they would have testified to that fact only. Julius's attorney didn't call any witnesses on his behalf, including his family members.
0: And so I imagine that he went through – all the processes, of ineffective uh, attorney and, and whatnot, and everything has yes. been
1: denied. Everything was yeah. denied, yes. Yeah. That's, so that's, he had exhausted all, all, of, all of his appeals, all of his habeas petitions, and um, so, commuta- so he filed the application for commutation back in October of 2019. So it was almost two years ago that he filed this petition. And they still were trying to take the hearing date away from him that he's waited two years for that the former AG said he has a right to. So I guess due process isn't an issue here because if the former AG said, yes, you have a right to this hearing, and the board passed him through stage one and said, yes, we're going to give you a stage two hearing. And now the DA and the current AG try to step in and trample all over those due process rights. But it's a problem.
0: And and uh, once again, I have not never been a, a Mike Hunter fan by by any means, but uh, for some reason, I just think it's one thing that he did that he did right was make that statement that he has the right to um uh to to petition for a, a commutation.
1: I I, I, I don't really think are any grounds to say anything else, honestly. But he did say yes, he has the right to a commutation hearing. Uh, any death row inmate has the right to file a commutation application and they have the right to a commutation hearing.
0: That is great to know. That is great to know. And and before we talk about the um, second part of the hearing, the second hearing tomorrow, I just want our listeners to know, and and especially those that are in Oklahoma uh, to save the date, September 25th, 2021, 1 to 4 p.m. at the Oklahoma State Capitol in Oklahoma City. Uh, You don't want to miss this one. It's a rally for justice denied and uh, second chances. Uh, The the lineup is absolutely amazing who is going to be there. Um, But check out the page, uh, the Facebook page, Unite Justice, so that you can see everybody who is in the lineup uh, who, will, who will be there. There will be a fantastic uh, rally at the Oklahoma Capitol, Ignite Justice. Uh, Emily Barnes, she's doing a great job out there um, bringing much uh, to, to front and center. And, and, she's you know, she's like the bullhorn for, you know, information, getting information out there and pulling people together. Um, She's got somebody in prison herself within her family, uh, very close, near and dear to her heart, these clauses, and she's doing a real good job. So once again, um, that date is September 25th, 2021 at the Oklahoma State Capitol, which is in Oklahoma City, all right? And it's 1 to 4 p.m., 1 to 4 p.m. Go on over to Facebook page Ignite Justice. All right, so... So Melissa, talk about tomorrow's <laughs> hearing and uh, what time it is, and how people can watch or you know how they can stay on top of this case um, and uh, get the
1: good news. Knock on wood. Yeah, they it's it can be watched by Zoom as part of the um, Open Meeting Act, so they have it on available on Zoom um, on the. Website of the Oklahoma Pardon and Pro Board. Yes. So um, if you go onto that website, then the link will be there. The information, or at least the information will be provided as to how you can log on to watch it. Um, Mm -hmm. I believe they're starting at 9.30. I believe it's 9.30. Um, I'll check that, though, because I want to be sure. And that would be central time, obviously.
0: And what Um, else do anybody... Trusted in it, I'll, I'll find that link and I'll post it um, in the comments section of um, of the of the uh, promotion that I put out for tonight's show. So I'll I'll find that and I'll put it in the comments section. Uh, uh, that link. So uh, anybody who yeah, wants to watch you it,
1: should, you should. I and just you pulled can. it up. It's on there okay. if, as soon as you go to www.ok.gov uh, forward slash ppb. Another forward slash, it will yeah. pull up their the uh, the homepage, and it is right there. at pardon and parole board meeting announcement. So they're going from September 13th through the 15th because they have quite a docket of commutations. Um, I know that the last time they did these, it it, it ran um, two days. So I don't know exactly what time they'll have Julius's case on, but they have a whole a whole docket that they're going to go through. So. I looked on the website earlier. I believe his so case were,
0: for commutation, therefore pardon. Yeah,
1: yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They have. I believe they have com. I didn't look at every case, so I the believe right. they have pardons and commutations both scheduled. But I know that. Um, go ahead. I believe Julius's case is there's over two hundred cases on the on the docket I believe his is a hundred and number one fifteen okay I looked at that so earlier so get
0: to it tomorrow What's that? They might not actually get to it tomorrow
1: then well I, I I don't know I would think that they would get to it tomorrow. It's been a big thing, but i I mean I can't say for sure um right. it, it, his date is supposed to be the thirteenth, but they're commencing it on the thirteenth and right here on their website it says they're gonna go from the thirteenth to the fifteenth. But he I I believe that they're starting with that docket. I don't know if they have any parole matters on or not. I'm not sure about that. I know they're uh, starting with the supplemental parole which is commutations and pardons. So they will be oh, starting I hope with those. Okay. I hope and they're gonna so. go they go all day. So I would think that they would get to his before the end of the day tomorrow I'd hope. Okay. Well, I
0: know I'll be watching again, and you know, uh, I encourage mm-hmm. anybody who hasn't, you know, any, anyways, uh, or even if you have, to still watch because this is, this is just an unprecedented situation, as as Melissa was saying. But it it really is quite an education to see um, how things uh, how things go in the pardon and parole board. And in the past, you know, when you watch these hearings with other board members. Uh, they've been kind of disjointed and pre-planned, it seems. Um, but with this new board, it just—it seems very thoughtful, absolutely thoughtful. And um, and 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 those that they are allowing to be paroled, they're making certain contingencies as well. They need to pass this. They need to pass that. You know, so it's you know we've got a board that believes in second chances but they have no interest in putting people back on the streets that are going to uh, create another victim. So it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's a great, it, it's, it really is an education to, to, to watch this.
1: Um, um, I, yeah. I know
0: that I'll but,
1: be tuning yeah. in as much as I can. I watched the last meeting that they had, I watched all two days and, and watched them go through case after case, and you are exactly right. They were given people second chances, but there were contingencies placed upon some of them. You know, you, it, it, the, D, the DA's office will have you believe they're just letting everybody out on the street and it's a free-for-all. That, that's not the case. You have to be open to some kind of rehabilitation and some kind of criminal justice reform. You can't just – you have over 26,000 people in your prisons. Are you just going to continue to lock people up and throw away the keys? Right, right, exactly. Now, Oklahoma is a big state, but population-wise, they're not very much more of a population than Connecticut. Connecticut's a small state, but we're much more populated. Right, So we have brought our prison population here down to under 9,000. We just closed two prisons. They're ready to close one more. And a state that has a population just a tad bit bigger, almost the same size, is incarcerating over three times as many people. That's a problem. There's there's an incarceration problem. We know as a a country we have an incarceration problem. We know we have a mass incarceration problem. It's time to start calling out these states that really are really over incarcerating people at those kinds of numbers. And to board that is open, you know, to fairness and rehabilitation and giving people second chances it just shows the resistance to any kind of reform and rehabilitation. That's not supposed to be the goal.
0: Mm-hmm. And, well, and the thing is, I mean, why? One must ask why. Is it all about money? It's prisons for profit. There's still prisons for profit. Absolutely, prisons for profit. There's a lot of prisons for profit. There's still so much that's going on behind the scenes with contraband with all these crazy things happening where where there's government workers that are that are that are making money off of this you know mm-hmm. who's who's greasing whose hands there's a reason why everything happens and we can't just stop at the reason at what might somebody might say oh well because it has to happen no why is why are these numbers so skewed we've had and- we've had whistleblowers come on and tell us Mm -hmm. the truth about, you know, what goes on behind those bars.
1: Go ahead. What were you going to say? And it's just in the resistance, you know, to, to anything that has to do with reform. I mean, there was some hefty allegations against DA Prater and his resistance to criminal justice reform. I know we've talked about that before and how he is so resistant that he, he was trying to find anything he could find to stop reform criminal justice reform in Oklahoma and one must ask why I'm sorry one must ask why 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 why
0: Uh,
1: exactly I think it, it I think it's it's money um how like you said how does contraband get into these prisons how does drugs and cell phones and and whatever else get into these prisons There's people making money off of that contraband that is getting into those prisons. And it doesn't just walk in there by itself.
0: No, it doesn't. And especially during COVID, especially during COVID when it's still going on, and yet there's nobody who's allowed to visit. Oh, my goodness. What a racket. What a racket. Nobody's allowed in. So that automatically rules out visitors. Then,
1: Then who's doing it?
0: Nobody wants to talk about that, do they? No.
1: Yeah. And, it, and it's, wants- it's money being made, and it's, and it's also power, power and authority. It's still that good old boy mentality. It, it, it's still yeah. there. And it's yeah. win at all costs, and it's I'm tough on crime, and it's, we need to take everybody, every criminal off the street, and they play the card, and it's for the victims. Well, yeah. it's not. You, you're what the mass incarceration and the wrongful convictions—that is not for the victims and their families. That, that does nothing for the victims and their families. Right. So they—they, they, you know—they play on the public with that because nobody is forgetting about the victims. Nobody forget. You know, nobody saying that they're not victims to these crimes. But when you wrongfully convict somebody, the person who is wrongfully convicted, their family. The victims, the victims' family. There have been wrongful convictions where and the, well, the well, real killer has walked. Yeah, the Fantastic. money didn't these people.
0: Yep. So, uh, well, we're uh, we're going to talk about another um, wrongfully convicted twice. The perfect storm. But before we do that, and that's it's going to be brief. It's going to be a brief update. But before we do that, I'd like to remind our listeners. That this show, Tanya Talks, Where Your Voice is Heard and Your Story is Told, is also brought to you by Marcel Reed and the annual Whistleblower Summit. The annual Whistleblower Summit and Marcel Reed. So we want to thank you for that, Marcel Reed. And that is in D.C. every year, except the last couple of years it has been virtual. And Marty Oakley does have a permanent uh, place on, uh, on her own panel on guardianship issues. Very very important. Um, so, and Marty Oakley is the owner of PS Radio Network. Um, and as well, uh, what else was I going to tell you? On Tuesday night, this Tuesday coming up, it'll be seven thirty Central Time. We've got our regular contributors, Stephen Burke, who is also um, who also runs eighty nine point nine KLRB FM Lighthouse Christian Radio in Oklahoma in the surrounding area, folks. Stephen Burke and James Treat will be back on with us again to discuss more of the craziness with the vaccinations, uh, the whole, you know, the the overreach, the government overreach, um, the government corruption, and uh, ivermectin being suppressed uh, from those that have the ability to actually um, protect themselves uh, against. Uh, a, a virus that is, you know, seemingly real, but far, far, far overblown, and uh, obviously the uh, the vaccinations aren't necessarily working, are they, when there are just as many people that are coming down with uh, COVID that have been vaccinated. So please tune in on Tuesday, and we're going to talk about stuff like that. 730 central time George skate wrongfully convicted man who has spent more of his life in prison than out that's another one and he's in Oklahoma he was convicted through solely using snitch testimony now we've talked about his case we talked about his story I'm not going to get into the whole story right now because we want to make Ohio, this
1: he's in Ohio isn't he I just want to say, is he in, he, George Gates is in Ohio, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yes, he is. Okay. Okay. Uh, and I know well, I just you're going to clarify, because we're yep, talking about Oklahoma and you said Oklahoma, but he's in Ohio. Oh,
0: did I? Oh, you did. Thank but you. we've
1: been talking about Oklahoma. So I just wanted to, so people know that he's in Ohio. Uh,
0: Thank you so much. He's in Ohio. No. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, so his his daughter received a um, a thirty minute video from, uh, from the federal public defender's office, and you know something we know that public defenders, uh, there are some that are great and there's some that aren't great. There's are some that are trying hard, and as you've said before on our show, Melissa, that they're overworked. They're not prepared for the kind of cases. That um, that they are supposed to be defending, but this is a pub. This is a federal public defender now on the George Gates case, and he is there um, for the murder of Arthur Smith, and that's what put him in prison to begin with. Again, solely, solely uh, snitch testimony that put him there. No DNA. He has witnesses being some, being somewhere else at the time. Solely snitch testimony. Um, and then while he was in prison, the infamous Lucasville riot took place. That's right there. He was in the prison at that time. And it was the longest standoff uh, by inmates uh, in the history, at least in the United States. Uh, I think it was five or six days there was a standoff, and uh, there was one guard that was murdered, and there was, I believe, it was two inmates that were also murdered during that time. George Gates was asked to be the front person, to uh, because of his level-headedness. He was well known in the prison, well regarded in the prison, not only by um, not only by corrections officers, uh, but but as well as other inmates. He was known to be a guy that just minds his own business. Uh, that just is level-headed, and, uh, and so they asked him if he would be the spokesperson. He was unaware of any riot at all taking place, and once again, snitch testimony uh, pointed, pointed the fingers at George. George didn't have to be in prison uh, on death row, but he refused to take a plea deal admitting to something that he did not do. So we've got snitch testimony. Well, it wasn't that long ago, just fairly recently over the last couple of weeks, that his daughter received a 30-minute video um, along with a 10-minute video of some testimony uh, regarding um, advocates that were talking about the, the um, Arthur Smith murder. Uh, they cut out the Lucasville uh, testimony, uh, and they did that because that is sacred they're not uh, uh, you're not allowed to talk about the Lucasville riot and what really happened behind there. as a matter of fact, I'm going to be interviewing this man. It'll be his first interview in over thirty years since he has been there um, and I'm going to be interviewing him and going through the process right now, and we can only talk about the murder of Arthur Smith. We are not allowed to talk about the murder during the interview. Uh, The the conviction, uh, uh, his conviction during of the Lucasville riot. So I can talk about it now, but when I'm interviewing him, and you will all get an opportunity to see that interview, uh, we cannot do it live, but it'll be recorded. Um, You'll find that we will not talk about the Lucasville riot, um, but. We're a bit worried about the recklessness that's taking place at the public defender's office. Uh, the, we got a 10 minute she got a ten minute video of some testimony that was gi- given, but also not only that, there's a 30 minute video of somebody who is completely irrelevant to the case of George Gates on that DVD. that this was recklessly left on the CD and it named two different people that were busted for the death of Danny's grandmother, I'll say, all right? And it was Danny and Gina. They were boyfriend and girlfriend. And uh, Gina w- was innocent, but uh, in her, in her uh, testimony that's on this recording, again, nothing to do with George Gates at all, her Social Security number is given, her address, her cell number is given. Where do you have confidence? How can you have confidence when there are such breaches of confidence, when there's either too overloaded or so reckless and so careless? How can you have confidence in people's cases being properly represented when something like this happens? When you have the prosecution... That is gangbusters, they go gangbusters, and they don't allow they don't allow you to have uh, to discuss Lucasville riot, but here they give confidential information. Well Melissa, I want to say thank you very much for coming on tonight. I ran out of time. Uh, I want to thank you for all you do. I want to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in for all you do. And I'm going to ask everybody to tune back in. And I'm Tanya Hathaway, and I'm your host of Tanya Talks, where your voice is heard and your story is told on Marty Please, TS Radio Network, and Stephen Burks, 89.9 KLRB, Lighthouse Christian Radio. We hope you'll come back to us on Tuesday night at 730. Melissa Hurry, thank you so much, and we will keep you thank all you. posted.
1: Thank you. Go ahead. No, thank you. I um I will will be watching uh, that commutation hearing tomorrow for Julius Jones. That's for sure. So if you yes, want to update people on you know on your show on Tuesday, we will definitely. I know you'll be watching too, but I will yes. surely let you know what happens.
0: It will definitely be updated. We will make sure we do that as well. And even if that means having you on for the first fifteen minutes, we will definitely do that. Okay. Good night, everybody, and God bless. Thank you so much.